Welcome again to our church, uh, especially for visiting today. Glad you guys are here. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and we are um, going to move into a time of preaching, which we uh, value highly here at the church, and we value the Bible and hearing God's voice in it. And so we're going to move into a time here now of, of uh, hearing His voice through Matthew 26, 1 to 5. And it's a big day for us in a lot of ways, uh, preaching calendar-wise as a church. We've been in the, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament for almost two years. And we're finishing up this fall. So we're starting today with this last segment of the book, which we're calling just the Passion of the Christ. We'll talk about passion a lot here in the next three months. So if that's a new word for you, passion comes from the Latin word meaning suffering. So just think uh, synonymous with that is just the sufferings of Christ, the, the betrayal, the arrest, the trying, uh, the giving over of Christ in the hands of sinful men uh, to ultimately be crucified, flogged before that, crucified, and, uh, and he dies and is raised three days later. So it refers to all of that. So not just the actual moment of his death on a cross, but this enti- the entire event surrounding his last hours of life. And we're at that point now in Matthew 26. A couple of words I want to catch you up to speed. If you guys are new to Matthew, or new to the Bible, just brand new here at Hiawatha, you haven't been with us for the last year and a half or so, uh, I want to give just a, a crude, simple, hopefully helpful though summary on where we've been. So we'll get you up to speed here on, on how the narrative is shifting here in Matthew 26. And in, in a lot of ways, the first verse, which I'll read in a minute, uh, gives itself over to that. But in terms of where we've been, way back in chapter 1, there's 28 chapters in Matthew. It's the longest of the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's the longest of them. And Matthew and Mark are the two that have uh, the account of Jesus' birth, the, the two of the four gospels that do that. So it begins that way. Uh, Matthew does. In the, in the beginning of the book, then, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit so it's clear the, the book is that he was born of God, the, the inspiration of God in a sense, the, the intent of God. He was the son of God, God in flesh, born of woman, but also fully God as well. After his birth, laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. So very humble beginnings, yet he, he's announced by the angels to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And his name was to be Jesus because he would save people from their sins. So it's very clear, actually, and there's a lot of passages in the Bible that are more cryptic and almost like you have to blow the fog and the haze away a little bit more, a little more rigor or vigor. But uh, here you don't because it gets really clear, the angels do in chapter 1, that Jesus' name defines his mission. So whether it's Emmanuel or the name Jesus, which means Savior, uh, to save people from their sins, the angels say this is the concept, the theological idea, Emmanuel, of Christ being here on earth. Jesus, his name is identifying his mission. He came to save people from their sins. So we, we can't, at this point, even at this point when he's a baby, we understand why he's here. There's no question mark as to why he came into the world. He came with, uh, and we talked about this in this way early on a couple of years ago, how the manger is really a big arrow to the cross. The manger means nothing without the cross. If Jesus is just born into the world, it's actually not good news because God is here and there's no atonement for sin and it's judgment time. But it's not what happens. Uh, He came into the world to be born, but then to go to a cross and to die as a human being in our place. And so the cross is the climax, not the manger, though the manger is a huge uh, piece to the storyline. Later in chapter 3, he's baptized, commissioned for ministry, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, though he's already God, the Son, in the flesh, fully divine and fully human at the same time. Then he taught, he preached, he healed, he rebuked storms, he rebuked demons, He raised the dead. He dined with sinners, extending grace to them. He butted heads with good religious people who misunderstood his true mission and their true sinfulness. Remember, the main antagonist in the storyline is not just the devil, and it's actually not 
bad people. Uh, bad people uh, usually receive Jesus quite well because they see their need for him. The main antagonist outside of the devil is really religious good people, the, the pastors of the day who misunderstood their need for Christ and their true sinfulness and his true mission. And so they are the ones actually that, as we'll see here in the storyline, uh, end up wanting his head, end up wanting to expedite the process of executing him. And so with that in mind, at one point uh, here with uh, number four, uh, what I call, I think I called it this uh, a few or several months ago now, we're in chapter 12, but uh, what I call the Sabbath gauntlet is thrown down at one point in his ministry, uh, where Jesus broke the Sabbath law, this command to, to rest, or his disciples did anyway, and Jesus okays it, uh, and then redefined the whole thing around himself as the true rest of God. This is one moment in the storyline where he's already facing some, some pushback from the religious rulers who are misunderstanding him and just don't like him. A lot of people are receiving him widespread, and that's great as well. So a lot of clashing over him and disillusionment and all of that stuff. But this is the moment where Jesus says to them effectively, I am the new Sabbath. Uh, for a long time now, you've kept a Sabbath command and rested one day a week, but now the Sabbath is not so much a day of the week, it's me. Because I came to give, as Matthew 11 says, I came to give you rest for your souls. And that's something the Sabbath in the Old Testament, this command to rest once a day, could never, ever do. It could only be a placeholder for a time to give way to Christ. And, and so this is a huge thing. It's a paradigm-shifting thing. And for a lot of you, it might be the first time you've heard that. But Jesus really redefines law around himself. He doesn't keep commanding the Ten Commandments to be kept. He actually says, they're all wrapped up in me now. I'm the fulfillment of them. I'm the goal of them. I'm the finish line. And in the way they continue, I, I redefine it and I point people back to me. So the law always pointed to Jesus. And now it still continues that that role. But now that he's here, it takes more of a backstage. So it's those two, thi two things, a lot of things you could say about this, but really a couple of things that were wrapped up in that that really led the Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious Jewish rulers, to really want to speed up and, and, and proceed down the, the road of, of destroying him. Matthew 12, 14 says, from then on, after Jesus talked about the Sabbath in this way, from then on, they sought to destroy him. So it was, it was this gauntlet throwdown where Jesus is basically saying, I am God, I'm not just a man, I'm the son of God, I'm divine, I have authority over law, and I'm redefining it around myself. It was those two things that were just completely indigestible. The, the, the religious rulers could not handle it. They freak out, and from then on, they conspire privately to destroy him. The rest of Matthew then, that's going on in the background as Jesus is teaching, continuing to butt heads with these types of people, uh, rebuking storms, speaking in parables, predicting his own death, building the storyline ahead to the cross, which is always, again, where he's headed. So there's this progression then of sorts, even geographically, from Galilee, this northern region where he spent most of his life, his life south along the Jordan River, to the Judean region, which is where Jerusalem was. He goes there knowing full well he, that's where he'll be betrayed, into the hands of sinful men, as he says, these are his words, uh, to die on a cross and have that final clash with the Jews there. So at this point then, like I said, we're, we're in this new subsection of Matthew. All of that leads us up to today, Matthew 26, 1 to 5. And again, we're calling this, uh, this subsection here, the passion of the Christ, the last three chapters of Matthew, the climax of the book, no doubt, and really the climax of the entire Bible. If you're reading the, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the first of the last book of all the 66 books, this would be the point of the storyline where we would say, this is where we've been headed. And everything after it is fallout from this, or fallout in a good sense. Fallout's a bad word, but 
just spin it in a positive way. The fallout from the cross. This is all the ramifications or the consequence of the fact that God became a human being to align with us and to associate as one of us and to advocate for us as a human being, but also God before himself, before God the Father, and to die and to shed his blood for our sins, as Peter talked about up here in light of that song a few minutes ago. Okay, so here we go. Matthew 26, 1 to 5. Uh, these words begin and set the stage for this last wonderful, glorious section, actually. In fact, if you've never read the Bible before, uh, we invite you to come back this fall and to be here because we'd love to introduce you to not just Matthew 26 to 28, but the whole of the scriptures when we do this. And, and you'll see today how we're not just talking about these verses. We're going to talk a lot about the Old Testament, how it points to this one event, and how Jesus is not just, and Matthew, who writes these things, is not just writing history, he's writing theology. He's writing about Jesus' intent to die on Passover. He's writing about interactions with people who want his head. He's, he's writing about his words to the disciples, his prediction of the future, and how important that is, his control over all of this. It's all takes a, it all takes the forefront here in narrative form, and it'll be important for us to see as we read here and learn from it. Okay, let's set the stage uh, with five verses today, and we'll come back next week and talk a little more robustly about um, Jesus' final hours. Matthew 26, 1 to 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, another word for Jesus, will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. All right, just to summarize this briefly here then, verse 1 says, Jesus finished all of his teachings or sayings, which is another way to say everything that he did and said up to this point had reached a bit of a conclusion here. Two days before Passover, two days before his death. And now the, the idea, the sense you get in the narrative is a shift is occurring in that Jesus is really going to go to work. Because remember, everything he says, everything he does is either, is either implicitly or explicitly setting the stage for the cross. And so at this point, he's finished with that preparatory stuff. Now he's going to enact it. Now he's going to really go to work and die on a cross for the sins of the world and overwhelm death by walking out of a tomb three days afterwards and inviting the world, all those who believe, into that experience as well for salvation's sake. Verse 3 then says, Then the chief priests and elders met in Caiaphas's house to plot and discuss how to arrest and kill Jesus. But this is key in verse 5. It says they don't want to do it during the Passover festival. They don't want to do it during uh, the, the day of Passover. It was, it was one day. There was always a subsequent related festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread that always happened for the next seven days after Passover. So they're thinking in their minds it's going to be about seven or eight days, actually plus those two, so about nine, ten days from now at least until we want to see this execution happen. They're already plotting to do this, no doubt. But in their minds, they're thinking, we don't want this to, ha to happen during the feast. The Passover festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which again, uh, follows a week after the fact. So they're thinking about nine, ten days from now. But it's clear that Jesus says, no, it's going to happen in two days. Just to get our calendar right here, this is the Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus dies on Friday, Good Friday. This is a couple days before the Passover. And he's saying, no, it's going to be two days from now. But there, there's a conflict here of intent, right? And, and they're not talking this is just the, the, the narration here gives us an insight into Jesus with his disciples 
and the chief priests and elders who are planning nine, ten days from now. They don't want an uproar. A lot of people are, are partial to Jesus. A lot of people hate him. But it's really for those people and for the widespread crowds that, 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 that the elders and chief priests don't want this to happen on Passover. People are upset about it. And so they're planning for this to happen after, after the fact. That's an important detail here, which I'll come back to in, in just a second. Okay, so with all that said, uh, with a summary in mind and, and these first five verses read from the 30,000-foot view here, we'll come down to ground level in a minute here, but the question is, what do we learn, right? It always is. But what is this saying to us? What are the scriptures teaching here? What are they saying about Christ? What are they saying about the, the storyline, how it's playing out? What do the details mean? A lot of times we read about details like this, and a great question is, why is it there? Because God doesn't make a mistake when he records detail. It's not just history. Like a history book might record a detail of, you know, someone's a particular historical figure's hobbies or a conversation they had that seemed a little bit, you know, mundane or something like that, that we could read over and still get that, the greater idea. In the Bible, though, it's never, it's never like that. Yes, there are more important things. We have to have some categories for more important things and lesser important, but they're all still under the umbrella of important and God intending these things for the sake of uh, our benefit. We might know God better, know salvation better, and just learn something here about our own storyline as it relates to his. Okay, so two things, and I'll just say them right off the bat so you can have, have this in mind as we go through it. First thing we learn is Jesus is in complete control of his own death. We'll see it play out today. We've already seen this, actually. We'll see it play out next week and the following week and the following week as well. So big theme to have in mind, actually, in subsequent Sundays here as we go through the fall. But it's a big thing that comes up today. Second thing is, relatedly, uh, his bent towards dying on Passover. And not just bent, his hardcore intention. Like he, he's always had Passover in mind, the festival, and dying on that day. Why is that uh, important and not just a passing historical, oh, it happened to be Passover. But no, it's Passover. And Jesus knows it's Passover and he wants to die in Passover for important symbolic reasons. That'll be second. But these things are like almost two orbs that overlap here. Not, they're, they're not separate, they're, they're related. But we'll start with the one and build into the second. Okay, so the first one is Jesus was in control though others plotted to kill him. In other words, he's orchestrating this whole thing. Now, it doesn't mean to be clear that the chief priests and elders are innocent. It doesn't mean they're puppets in this whole thing. The Bible is clear that they're sinning by killing the Son of God, so they have responsibility here. But it does mean that, that there is a greater author behind all of this, and the scriptures are, are not subtle about this. They're, they're very clear that, that Jesus' death is not a plan B. It's not a surprise to God, and that there's so many, there's so many points in the narrative where Jesus could have taken off-ramps to the cross. He could have said this. He could have not said this. He could have not gone to Jerusalem. But there's so many times then where we see, but he could have avoided, or he could have delayed, or he could have done this. But it's clear the scriptures are saying in many and various ways, and we'll just scratch the surface today from this scriptural vantage point. We've seen a lot as the story's gone along how that's already uh, been, been the case. So how do we see this? Uh, verse 2 is most clear. It says, you know, uh, Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, Jesus, will, I will, be delivered up to be crucified. So he's just predicting the future, right? Two days from now, and he's, he's quite specific. He's saying the timing and the mode are, are being predicted here. Not just that I'm going to die, but it's going to be in two days on the Passover. And the mode of crucifixion is key here too. And that's, that's a pretty big deal because the Jews didn't have the authority to crucify it was only the Romans. So he's also predicting, in the subtext here, he's predicting that somehow 
the Romans will become involved and they will be the ones to, to bring about their form of execution upon me, not the Jews, not some kind of stoning or something like that that Jews would more, most likely do. But since they were under Roman rule, they were limited a little bit as well. But a lot of, this, a lot of the details here are, are shockingly uh, specific. And, and, they, and they happen. This actually happens this way. If you don't know the end of the story, uh, I'll just wreck it uh, here and just say this actually happens. All this. All these details come uh, to fruition not too long from now. Okay, and then look at the then. That's the first thing, the most clear. The next two are a little more subtle. The next thing to notice is the then in verse 3. So Jesus predicts all this with his disciples. Right after that, in a different location, the chief priests and the elders gather in Caiaphas' house to conspire. And the way it's worded there with the then, there's this causal relationship almost set up with it. So Jesus predicts this with, with shocking clarity and specificity. It ends up happening. And then right after that, the then, the chief priests gather privately to conspire against Jesus. And almost like the way it's worded, it's almost like they're incited to conspire against. Even though they've already been doing this, this, this relationship of Jesus speaking first and then the chief priests and elders gathering second creates this idea of, and then it's happening. Jesus is sovereign over this. He's in control. He's not aloof. He's not just the, the victim of people's plannings. He's, he's also, almost in one sense, the victim of his own plannings because he's wanting this, to, wanting this to occur. All right, then third. This is a big one too, and I, I referenced this in the summary portion a few minutes ago, but this is huge. Remember, Jesus says this will happen in two days, right? When do the chief priests and elders think this is going to happen? About nine or ten days from now, right? When does it actually happen, if you know the story? In two days, right? Jesus gets it right. But it's interesting that the people that are actually planning this thing are wrong. Like they're thinking, they're the ones that are trying to see this to its, to its end. They want Jesus' head. They're thinking nine or ten days, but it doesn't end up happening that way. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus knows, Jesus knows the timing and the circumstances and the mode of his death better than the people who are planning it concurrently. It's amazing. Jesus is God. He's this in control. He's this predicting of the future. Even, even right here, hours before it ends up happening, the people wanting it to happen are thinking something else. It's incredible. Okay, also very important here, and, and we'll move into this now as the second thing I want to spend the rest of our time on, is this, this idea of Passover as not a pass, passing detail to skim over, but a very important thing for, for Jesus. Each of the four gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, which, which give their own spin on the theological history of, uh, of Christ and how it fulfills all the scriptures and so forth, all of them have, and are careful to point this out, that it's on Passover that Jesus dies. Not a day before not a day after, and not a different Jewish festival, but actually on, on Passover, like we see in verse 2 here. We said a couple of times uh, during our, our time in Matthew that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Jesus, some of you might not be aware of this, but uh, Jesus uh, attempts to suppress his identity a lot of times. Ever wondered why that is? If you've read the gospel accounts and, you know, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead and he says to everyone in the house who saw that, be sure you don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. I don't want anybody to know this. He actually says he sternly warns them. He uses those words, don't tell anybody this. Or when he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Am I just a prophet or am I the son of God? And, and Peter gets the right answer. He says, no, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right after that, Jesus says, don't tell anybody that that's the case. 
which is, is wild, right? If, if you know what happens right after the cross, Jesus' commission to the church is essentially, tell every living soul on the planet that I'm the Christ. So what's the difference, right? The difference is the cross is in between these things. Jesus' intention, part of why he's doing this, suppressing his identity and telling people to not talk about his miracles, he's, is in part, he's controlling the timeline so that his rejection doesn't come too quick or his fame spreads too quick in the way he doesn't want and, and so forth, so that, and there's other reasons for this too, but one of the reasons we talked about along the way in Matthew is that he can plan to die on Passover. And it's happening. His whole, his whole progression from Galilee to Judea happens at the right time and even now, there's this, in one sense, if this is always the plan, there's this almost this wrench in the gears of this happening because the chief priests don't even want this. His accusers, his executors don't even want this. They want it 10 days from now. Even now, there's this question mark. But Jesus is masterfully controlling this whole thing along the way so that he will die in Passover. So, with all that said, the big question here is, why? Right? Why the Passover? If Jesus is, in fact, orchestrating this whole thing, and it's clear he is, then why is he choosing the Passover? Again, why not another Jewish festival like Pentecost or the Feast of Trumpets or Tents or something like that? Why is he choosing this one and not another one? And why, why would it really have mattered if it was Thursday or Wednesday that week or Saturday or, or Sunday? And the answer is yes, it would have mattered. It's really, 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 really important that he died on Friday and not Thursday or Saturday? And the answer is because Friday was Passover. So if we ask that bigger question, why does this really matter? Is it really that important? And, and it is. And the broad answer is yes. <laughs> but the more specific answer is the importance of the Passover needs to come to the forefront. So to understand why, we have to talk about what the Passover is. And a lot of you probably never even heard, maybe heard the term, not really sure what that meant biblically, so we'll review this in short in a minute. But when we talk about the Passover, understand in general, we talk about it in two ways. There's the event of the Passover in the Old Testament, which I'll recount in a minute. And then there's the festival that Israel was called to commemorate, to help commemorate the event. So it's, it's kind of talked, it's usually lumped together, but in the first sense anyway it was. But now Israel was gathering like this. It was a pilgrimage festival. Jews from all over the region would come to Jerusalem and they would eat in remembrance of the Exodus event of the Old Testament or when God brought them up out of slavery to Egypt and when a Passover lamb was slain for their, for their deliverance. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read just, just in summary here what the Passover event referred to and I'll read from the book of Exodus 2 in the Old Testament to give you some more explicit language on it. The Passover event refers to when God delivered Israel up from slavery in Egypt around 1400 B.C., and in process of delivering his people from, uh, who was a very stubborn, heavy-handed pharaoh of the day and would not let them go, God brings a number of plagues upon the Egyptians, which culminates with the plague of the death of the firstborn. There was ten plagues. The tenth was the worst. And God said, uh, because of Pharaoh's stubbornness and in, in not letting my people go, I will send through Moses and Aaron, my intermediaries of sorts, my prophets. I will announce this, and I will finally bring it upon the people that in one night, all the firstborns of the land, human and animal, will die. And that, that's this final, you know, the, if you know all the plagues, there's gnats and frogs and boils. Those are bad enough, but obviously not as bad as the death of all the firstborns of the land of Egypt. But here's the spin. God says, you won't be spared this plague, Israel. You won't be spared the plague either unless you take a lamb 
you slaughter it, and you paint its blood over the doorpost and the lentil of your door with hyssop. If you do that, if you paint it over your door, I will see the blood, and I will pass over your home, and the plague will not befall you or your children. So let me read this from Exodus 12, 1 to 7, and 12 to 14. Uh, brief synopsis here, right in context, when it actually first happened. This is theological history. This actually occurred. This is God uh, moving amidst the Egyptians, amidst his people Israel, to pull them up out of slavery and their mistreatment there uh, back in around 1400 B.C. Okay, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word comes from, pass over. I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. All right, to be clear here then, essentially what's going on is God promises the plague, but he provides a way out of it for his people Israel, which is a lamb's blood. When God sees the blood, he will pass over that home and the firstborn will not die. And subsequent feasts then are set up to keep killing lambs and this time eating them in commemoration of that what we call this exodus event or deliverance, coming up out of Egypt, exodusing out, delivering themselves out behind Moses, God doing it, event that was so critical and crucial for, uh, for Israel in Old Testament times. It's actually this meal that Jesus eats with his disciples as well, hours before his death. He's not just having supper, he's having a Passover meal. Because again, Thursday night began uh, the, the daily calendar effectively for the Jews. So Friday basically began Thursday night at 6.30. So Jesus had this meal on Passover beginning Thursday at 6.30, had the meal and was later betrayed and arrested, had trials overnight and was crucified from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Friday. Just to give you an idea of where we're headed here. Uh, calendar-wise. But it's this day that he dies as, as well. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily, uh, and all you guys will be in different places here, uh, understand that. I'm going to talk on the big picture here. Again, 30,000-foot view in one sense to give you an idea of where we're headed, why this is important. But in one sense, for a lot of you anyway, it doesn't take much to see the correlation here with Jesus Christ. There's a correlation in play between the first Passover and what Jesus is doing himself and is about to do on the cross. In one sense, you could say the Bible is essentially a tale of, of two Passover lambs. It's a tale of a lot of two things, actually. But one of the, the two things is a tale of two Passovers. There's not just one in the Old Testament. There's a second one, a spiritual one, a better one, a greater one that relates to all of us in the room uh, right now. 
And everybody in the world who hears the gospel preached and has a chance to respond to the proclamation of the gospel. It's actually a Passover thing that is occurring. So the resemblances then between this Passover lamb and the Passover event in Christ are, are striking and intentionally. The Bible's intentionally doing this. Even right from Exodus 12, just a few details to start here. The lamb is a male, like Christ. The lamb is, a, the lamb is, is supposed to be blemishless, like Christ is sinless. In another passage in Exodus we didn't read, it says the lamb's bones are not to be broken. Israel was not to break the bones of the lamb. That should be a, 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 an intact boned lamb. It should never break. And at one point when you read that in the story, you think, well, why in the world, right? Does that really matter? <laughs> Come on. You know, God, is this really an important detail? What if it accidentally happens? Are we going to throw the lamb out? And, try? and the answer is yes. At that point in history, it's, it's, there's haze and fog, right, over the whole story. Why? Why all these details? Why these requests? With Christ, the story becomes much more clear. Christ effectively blows away the haze and the fog by saying, it was all about me all along. Because you see on the cross, when Jesus is almost at the point of death, uh, the centurions come out to break the legs of all the people who are being crucified to expedite asphyxiation, which is how they ultimately died on the cross. But it says, all the gospel accounts are clear that Jesus' bones were not broken, though, because he died before that could occur. So again, silly kind of detail, right? If, if we're not to make these connections, if they're just sort of circumstantial and coincidental, then why write about them? Why mention the bone-breaking thing? Why not just that he died? But the gospel accounts are clear. This happened on Passover, and Jesus is like that Passover lamb in that male, blemishless, and no bones broken. But moving on from that, those are just beginning details here. Moving on from that, in a greater theological sense here, the Passover lamb and Jesus Christ, both in their respective stories, the one pointing to the latter, deter God's judgment from those who take shelter under their blood, right? There's a problem here of God's judgment and a plague that God says, I've made a way out for you in its blood. In the New Testament, there's another problem as well that's actually bigger than what Israel was experiencing, and that is eternal separation from God and punishment for our sin, imprisonment to death and sin, not a, not a nation like the Egyptians. And God speaks into that situation and says, this doesn't have to be it. I love you. I'm making a way out. And it's not just going to be a lamb's blood, it's going to be my blood. I'm going to send my son into the world. I'm going to become a human being, walk among you, and die in your place. And, and the blood, my blood, will be a sign for you to cling to and to walk out from your sin underneath. As if it was your ultimate banner, your ultimate mantra, your ultimate song, your ultimate theology, your ultimate gospel, your ultimate meaning in life, the most important thing for you the rest of your days. If you trust in it, I will see the blood over your soul through belief, and I will pass over you, and no judgment will befall you. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Revelation 1.5-6 says, To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the idea of, of Jesus bleeding and through his blood instigating freedom and a way out, a way of escape from our sins are closely connected, just like they were in the Old Testament. The Passover lamb's blood thing happened first. The next day, Israel walked out of Egypt behind Moses. They were finally set free. So freedom and blood here are, are wrapped up into Revelation 1. This is a New Testament book, and it's, it's just dripping with Passover language, 
dripping with Old Testament Exodus language and freedom language and slavery language and, and hope because this actually occurred in history and it actually affects us, those of us who believe and trust in his blood, who actually, with our actions and our belief and faith, paint blood over our minds and our souls and our bodies effectively, spiritually, so that we'll be saved from the day of judgment. Elsewhere, the Bible gets a lot more explicit. Just two places, uh, for those of you especially who are new to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Jesus, this is in the New Testament, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. John 1, another gospel account. John the Baptist says this about Jesus, seeing him from afar, coming to him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The two very explicit lamb passages here, we'll, we'll sing a song about this actually to respond here in a, in a little bit, uh, that talks about the Lamb of God. Jesus being lamb is not a random metaphor. It's inextricably linked with the first lamb and all the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament. To say otherwise is to treat the Bible as though it's dissected, not a, not a unity, and certainly not to talk in the way that the Apostle Paul does here about Jesus actually being our, the church's, hope in Passover lamb. His blood was spilt. And through that, we can trust and have hope. One additional thing here, too, I want to mention in Matthew uh, to, to bring it back to our passage. And actually, this is next week's passage, so going ahead a little bit here. Uh, but we'll talk about a little bit more next week as well from a different angle. But since we're on the Passover theme, Jesus being this ultimate Passover lamb, I think it's another striking correlation in that. Uh, one thing I didn't mention is, just to remember to get your calendar right here, Jesus is dying this Wednesday. He's dying on Friday, the Passover. The Wednesday and Thursday of that week, especially the Thursday, were what the Jews called the day of preparation for the Passover. It was the day that people went out and they bought their lambs, and they started to prepare for that feast that began Thursday night at 6 p.m., went throughout the night or roughly uh, around that time. So if that's going on, basically when Jesus is saying this, and especially in the next passage, when Jesus is being betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, it's this, the correlation here about purchasing lambs is, is striking. So in this, in this sense then, on the day, I'll just read through this. On the day of preparation, Thursday, when everyone was out buying their lambs, this is just happening all over the city to slaughter and eat later that evening. This happens in Matthew 26. And the chief priests gave Judas 30 pieces of silver to, to deliver Jesus over to them. Isn't that fascinating? Basically what they're doing is they're buying their own Passover lamb. They're saying, Judas, here, tell us where he is. Here's 30 pieces of silver. If he is the Passover lamb, the ultimate one, and he is, then basically what they're doing is they're buying him with a measly 30 pieces of silver, which there's another sermon there. I'll come to that next week maybe. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, but isn't this amazing? This is happening. It's almost, it's just like, it's almost like someone's like intending this, right? Because he is. It's like God is over his whole thing. He's intending all this to occur to tell another Passover story. The day of preparation. The day before Jesus' death is occurring and Jesus, a Passover lamb, is being purchased. Betrayed and purchased in this type of manner to, again, point us to the fact that he is the ultimate Passover lamb, about to be prepared, flogged, slaughtered, and crucified for you and me. So, what we need to do here, there's more to say about this, but these are some big components of Passover theology as it relates to Jesus. What we've got to do here is smell the air a little bit. Now, we always have to do this when we read narrative, but especially here. We have to remember that Passover is this theological, historical backdrop to what's happening to Jesus in the foreground. 
It's, it's just it's happening. All this Passover stuff's going on physically. The festival's happening. Passover lambs were being purchased. Passover and freedom, release from slavery in Egypt, is just on the people's minds as Jesus is going through all this stuff and about to go through all uh, this stuff. And they're connected. This, it's intentional. Uh, Morris says in his commentary on this passage, I think this is a helpful summary, the thought of sacrifice leading to the freedom of the people of God was in the air at the time when the greater sacrifice that would set people free from their sins everywhere was to be offered. Isn't that beautiful? God is the best storyteller ever. And he's so intentionally wrapping up the physical with the spiritual, letting other sub-stories help point to this greater story of God coming to our rescue. The great Passover lamb, the great hope for sinners like us. All right, so what do we learn from these uh, first five verses in summary and also um, to drive this home a little bit more, especially with the first one, practically? I think it affects the way we think, essentially. On one level, a lot of you might just be here and, and you've never heard that before. You've never really understood how the Old Testament can point to the new, and it's informative for you. Hopefully it's true for all of you. I mean, it is for me, and I've known these things, but it's just good to remember them. Wherever you are, though, th there's this factual teaching element of, oh, yeah, the Old Testament matters. And it's not just on an island. It points to something beyond itself, that something being Christ. On another level, it should affect the way that we think about God and think about what happens on the cross and think about how God relates to us even currently amidst our own sufferings. And that's the first thing. So two things here in summary and also in terms of how it should affect our thinking. First, we learn that Jesus has complete control over and even amidst suffering. Jesus here in this passage we see is in control of every detail of his impending death. We talked about that. We'll see it play out more as the narrative goes on. But understand here and just rest in the fact, it's good news, that he's in control of his own suffering. The prediction, the timing, the mode, the inciting of the chief priests, the Passover calendar correlation. So many chances all of this could be derailed. But it's not. It's not. And here's the thing for us too. He's in control. On one level, there's this, there's this driving force behind all of this teaching to the cross where we can say, he was bent on it for you and me. On another level, when we close our Bibles and we, we finish reading Matthew 26, 1 to 5 or some kind of related passage and go on with our lives, we have a choice here, not just to believe or not, but to see this type of God as at work in our life or not. A God who intends evil or works through it for good. Because one of two things here you can say, you can, you, can, you can look at a passage like this and concepts like this and say, well, I see how God was in control of, of Christ's death, how Jesus himself was in control, orchestrating the whole thing, but I don't believe that that's true in my life currently. I don't believe God works that way anymore, that he's not that in control, that he's not able to redeem suffering in my life, that he can't use it for good, that it's possible not just for me to sin my way out of grace, but it's possible for uh, me to be in such a rut, so much at the end of my rope, so much suffering that God is more like this. I can't handle it. I can't redeem it. I can't help it. It's too much. We can either do that or we can say the same God who is the God of the cross, who orchestrated the whole thing for a greater good, namely, you're in my resurrection. You're in my atoned sin. You're in my eternal life. You're in my reconnection with, with God. You're my salvation. 
If he can do that, then the same God is going to be at work in, in my life now. He's going to, this is the Christian God. So on one level, uh, we, I, want to, I want to just say this, and to those of you who need to be reminded, and those of you who are hearing this for the first time, this is what God is like. He's not a God who's aloof or out of control or who's a billion miles away when evil is happening. He's a God who is able to somehow redeem it and bring about good from it. Because there will be no greater evil that will ever befall the earth than God himself dying in a cursed manner on a crooked cross, bleeding out among criminals. There's no greater abomination, no greater form of suffering than that. And what happened through that? Your good and my good. Your resurrection, my resurrection. Jesus' resurrection first. New life, eternal life. He brought about the greatest good through the worst of evils. And at the core of that is not just a reality to embrace for our salvation, but it's, it's a lens by which to, see, to view our lives. So do you believe that type of God is at work in your life, who loves you dearly and is able to redeem all of the crap going on in your life? All of it. No matter what it is, that, that God is with you in it. Not a million miles away, but he's in it. And he's going to bring about some kind of cross to glory, cross to empty tomb, cross to resurrection, evil to good thing in your life, in this life or the life to come. Do you trust him? Do you trust the Lord? It, do we trust the Lord is uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate question here. Really, really good news that God is like this. Really good news. Mysterious, no doubt. But really good news that God is not out of control of a part of our reality. That just like he is here in, uh, in the cross and being in complete control of the cross, he's in control of our stuff as well. All right. Second thing is, uh, Jesus' death sets us free. So believe it and uh, live it. One of the reasons why it's important to understand the Old Testament is because it helps us understand the new. I mentioned that before as well, but some of you guys may, have be, may be here and, you, and you've heard, whether you believe it or not, you've heard a thousand times at least the principle, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. What the Old Testament does is it gives greater, it almost puts meats on the bones of that very true, very glorious statement. It gives us a fresh angle on it, right? The Passover basically says this is what the cross is all about. It's about wrath deterrence. It's about blood being spilt to free people. It's about love and grace, right? It's about, it's about God giving something, giving a way out rather than people manufacturing it. So basically what it does to understand the Old Testament better is to understand the cross better. If you want to understand Jesus better and what happened on the cross, crack open your Old Testament and, and, and view everything through the lens of this is setting the stage for Jesus. We talked about Sabbath before as well. It's a whole other sermon. You can read about Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's not an island unto itself. It is a big arrow, a big flashing arrow ahead in the story to Jesus who will bring rest for our souls in a way law could never do. So same with Passover and same with Exodus, same with Lamb and the blood of the lamb uh, type concepts. It puts meat on the bones of the basics. But if it does that, then here's the biblical reality. Like the Passover preceded freedom, or an exodus in the Old Testament, so does that happen now for us, for all of us who paint his blood over the doorpost of their hearts. And this is how we keep the Passover. A Passover is not something that's just for Jews a thousand years ago, or even today, non-Christian Jews who keep it. Uh, it is something that is for Christians in a much greater sense than it is for non-Christian Jews today because we keep it in the way that we should in a New Testament era. Even right now in this room, we're keeping the Passover because we're talking about the Lamb, the Lamb of God who spilt his blood so that we might escape from sin. We're celebrating it. We're eating communion in remembrance of it. We're singing about it. 
All, the, all these things the Jews did about the Exodus in the Old Testament, we're doing that now about Christ, who is the goal of all of those things. So there's no better way to celebrate Passover on a regular, not just on a Sunday basis, but every single day of our lives than to remember Jesus and him crucified because he is the ultimate lamb who spilled his blood for, for you and me. So the idea behind that is to actively do it. These are concepts you can understand. It's a whole other thing to actually actively paint blood over your life and to be in a community that values it, uh, to, to, to prioritize it in your life, to read about it, to know it, to cherish it, to make it, to make it that mantra over our life and to, see, and to see lots of grace through it. Exodus 12, 13 says, just a few more things here. I'll just shoot from the hip here because I've got no better category for this. So just random stuff. Exodus 12, 13 says, the blood shall be assigned for you. This is what he said. The lamb's blood will be assigned. It's the same for you and me right now. But whose blood is it? It's not the Passover lambs. It's the Passover lambs. It's Jesus's. It's a sign. It's something for us to look to. It's a symbol. It's hope. It's something to trust in and something to rely on that God gives us that we don't manufacture ourselves. And that's the key component, too, to the narrative as well. If, if you're wrestling with the, the issue of do we, do we save ourselves a little bit? Is it, is it completely by God's grace or is it just a is it a gift or something we manufacture a bit? Look what happened in the Old Testament. Did someone just think of the idea of Passover lamb themselves after God promised the plague? Did someone say, I know, if I kill a lamb and I paint blood over my door, God will see it and then he'll pass over. Did that happen? Someone just say it. Just to make sure I'm being clear. No, right? No one thought this up on their own. God said, no, I'm telling you. I'm giving you the lamb. I'm giving you the blood. I'm giving you the way out. I'm giving you the way of escape. And there's no law mentioned. You're not saved by how good you are. God is not saying that if you're a good person, if you're righteous, and you paint the blood over your doors, then I'll let you escape. He's saying to people who are rotten sinners like you and me, people who probably that day are somehow kind of rejecting God and disbelieving in him, or committing adultery, or lying, or rebelling somehow from their creator. And God is saying, like we just read earlier, while you're in your sin, I'm dying for you. I've loved you even, not when you're a good person, when you're still sinning. I'm extending love to you by dying in your place. You guys see the correlations there. It's the same with us. God is extending grace to people who are sinners, who are actually in the act of sinning. He's saying, use this blood and I'll save you. I'll cover, I'll pass over. The plague will not, will not befall you. That's the good news of the gospel today from the vantage point of Exodus 12 and the vantage point of this obscure, sort of obscure anyway, narrative passage in Matthew 26 that we are called to then as we sing elsewhere or lie then on his precious blood as the scriptures say trust not just in the man Christ but in his blood spilt for us uh, that, that call is a Passover call to truly trust not just in the existence of God but we trust in more specifics than that we rely on his blood because we are inheritors of the Passover the festival the events the ideals the history and the theology. We are, we are Christian, Jew and Gentile inheritors of these things. Christ being at the head of all of them. Glory to God forever. So let me pray and we'll close. God, thank you for uh, this passage. Thank you for reminding us that you are intentional. You're completely in control and sovereign. You are more than a man. You are God because no man could do this. You are the son of God who is orchestrating everything, your plan A, to die on a cross uh, for sinners like us and to bleed. Uh, thank you that there's, in the blood, we have hope. In the blood, as Revelation 1 says, we have freedom. God, I pray as we respond here and 
uh, just not, not unlike uh, Israel, sang after they crossed that sea, escaping from Egypt and rejoiced and sang about you. Not unlike that, every week we do that because we also have escaped from Egypt. Those of us who believe we've come up out of our sin, we've, we've escaped from death, and we have this new Passover lamb. We have this way of escape from judgment. Praise be to God that that's a reality. It's theology. It's also history. And it's a reality right now in this room for all of us who remember it, cling to it, and find hope in it. So thank you, God, for that. Uh, help us to remember that you are not just the giver of that, but you're, you're the giver of the hope that, that nothing can separate us from your love. No suffering, no season of, of um, doubt, nothing. Uh, God, no man, no angel, nor height, nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, as your word says. Praise be to God that you are that in control and over all of our affairs and that close to us and that loving uh, towards us. May that encourage, especially those of us in the room who are suffering, that uh, you are a God who is an absolute master of bringing good out of evil and good out of suffering. Uh, in Christ's name, amen.